God, because of your grace and mercy, you have saved us. We thank you for that. And God, we come to the altar where you, where we can find rest in you. Give you all the praise. Yeah. 
Dear God, thank you that we are promised a crown in eternity. Thank you as well for the cross that we pick up daily. We, uh, we struggle living in light of the former and um, we struggle with the activity connected to the latter. And we ask you to open your scripture that it might transform us today. Speaking of transformation, we, um, we pray for all those who are traveling, so many, many families on the road. Please keep them safe. Those that are having a great time where water is involved, protect them. And we pray for all those who are ill. Some great healing in our church this week. People out of the hospital, up and moving from wonderful life-saving surgeries. Some, including me, who are sick. <clears throat> and I need your strength today. And I beg you to empower me. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, kids. Good to see you. When I was a silly young pup, uh, fresh from directing program at camps, uh, Grace Bible Church in Dallas decided to hire me as a youth pastor. I have absolutely no idea why. I was just starting seminary. I knew absolutely nothing about pastoring, and I was in way over my head. But this guy, uh, David Amstutz, and his precious wife, Anne, they mentored me. They listened to me. They taught me. Dave was especially concerned that I act biblically. Uh, David would spend lots and lots of time with me. He would regularly sit down with me and look over my overbooked calendar for all the youth activities, and he would ask me very gently, which of these things are least useful, Wayne? And when I would answer, he'd say, cut those things, get rid of them. When, uh, when some grumblers in that church decided to flatter me, hoping I would join their little coup against the elders, David pulled me aside and he said, Wayne, Wayne, flee those people. Division is never of the Lord. Don't have anything to do with them. Probably my favorite Amstutz moment ever was when he invited me into a counseling session. He was trying to teach me how to counsel, about which I knew nothing. Uh, I was frankly awful. I would interrupt people and say, you idiot, do this. It was terrible. Um, that's why I don't counsel to this day. But David brought me in to try and teach me. And there was a couple in there, and this guy kept talking about his midlife crisis. He kept using that phrase, my midlife crisis. And mild-mannered David finally leaned across the table and in a fairly loud voice said, let's always call things what they really are. Don't say my midlife crisis anymore. Say my sin. It's sin. It's not a crisis. Let's call it sin. And then he sat back. Brilliant. Just brilliant. And Dave continues to bless me these many years later. When I taught at Grace Bible Church last year, Dave found out that I was going to be there, and he came. In fact, he came up to me in the foyer, and he had orchestrated where three other people besides him that were all with me on that staff 30 years before were all there together. Dave said, I got everybody together to see if you've learned anything. And when it came time to prepare my study of Titus for this church that we're working on this summer, I found a brilliant set of notes that David had left me. He had, reshared, he had shared these with me. They were in my file uh, regarding the very end of the book of Titus. And there was a little note attached to it that said, Wayne, you need this reminder of how to act. We all do. So today's sermon is greatly based on the work of my old friend David. Trust me, you need this today just as much as I did 30 years ago when David first shared it with me, just as much as I need it now. Friends, we need this reminder of how to act. All God's people said, 
Amen. So let's open your Bible, if you would, to Titus chapter 3. <clears throat> Titus chapter 3, let's read the end of the book, starting in verse 8. This saying is trustworthy. Now, context real quickly, what Paul means by this saying. Happy birthday, by the way. What he means by that is you're justified by grace, what he's talked about earlier, and you are an heir of eternal life, okay? This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, Titus, so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone, but avoid foolish genealogies, <clears throat> foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that such a person is perverted and sins, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis, Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. Uh, that's up on the Greek mainland, not on the island of Crete, where Titus receives this letter. For I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos in their journey so they will lack nothing. And our people must also learn to devote themselves to good works for cases of urgent need so that they will not be unfruitful. Verse 15, all those who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. You'll see in our notes, you got a bulletin when you came and look inside there. You'll see in our notes, Paul begins in verse 8 with an adamant thesis statement. Here's his thesis. Be engaged in good works. This has been a major theme in the letter to Titus. Here's, here's how I summarize the book's thesis, uh, what this study is all about. Titus calls us to live out our right doctrine, orthodoxy, or truth in right living, orthopraxy, or godliness. A wonderful scholar named Edmund Hebert put it this way, in Titus... Paul stresses worthy Christian conduct and insists that Christian conduct must be based on and regulated by Christian truth. Nowhere else does Paul more forcefully urge the essential connection between evangelical truth and the purest morality than in this brief letter. Titus is about doing good works from a good theological base. Your notes uh, list for you a few references to this throughout the letter. It's throughout the letter. Look, chapter 1, verse 16. We were taught that, that Christians are the opposite of false teachers. False teachers are worthless for good deeds. Chapter 2, verse 7, we are to be exemplary for our good deeds. Chapter 2, 14, Christians are to be zealous for good works. 3, 1, we're to be ready to do good deeds. Um, chapter 3, verse 8 that we just read, we're to be careful to do good and profitable works. It goes on to say that are good for everybody. High bar there. Chapter 3, 14, Christians are devoted to good works. Now, Zoom in on the second idea there, the idea that Christians are to be exemplary for good deeds. As a whole, Frisco Bible Church excels in this, and it makes me very honored to serve with you. For example, let me just share with you one day. One day last month, I walked into this building to the sound of very, very excited kids who were learning the Bible through songs at VBS. The energy in here was amazing. A little bit later that day, I received a note about how well an outreach was going from one of our groups who was serving up at Grace Bridge, feeding people who were hungry. And as I was leaving the office that day, a group of ladies arrived from one of the life groups, and they were setting up for a baby shower to enrich a young single mom who chose to keep her unborn baby alive. That was just one day. For us to be that exemplary every day, we must be zealous for good works. Paul's point in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. See that? Being zealous happens best when we recognize that good works aren't our idea. <laughs> it's not about us. God prepared them beforehand for us. Every good deed was already thought up by God. Read with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, all together. For we are his workmanship. Together is an English word. It means everybody speaks at the same time. It's a fascinating thing. 
Let's try this all together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thank you. Now, you may remember earlier in Titus 3, um, when we discussed doing good, I shared with you a note from a friend of mine. Uh, He wrote me and he said this, really brilliant insight. He said, Wayne, I don't think you can just say do good and have people understand your meaning. In all sincerity, with our absurd yet believed no absolutes world today, folks may not even know how to define good. Do, Do people even know what constitutes a good work anymore, he asked And I shared with you that he's very likely correct. There are no doubt people right now who are listening to this study, studying with me, that are thinking, I I, I don't know what makes a good work. I don't know what good is. And I want to tell you, that's okay. As he said, in this culture, that is perfectly understandable. To help you, I want you to look again at my brief summary of Scripture regarding doing good. This is grotesquely oversimplified, but I think it's still useful. I I think uh, you can take all of the points in the scripture, and there are hundreds of them, about doing good, and you can reduce them to four themes. There are four things that occur over and over. First, if you want to do good, know how to share the good news of salvation in Jesus and do it. Number two, help others with what they need. Note, need is not always the same as want. Parents, please learn that. Number three, do no harm. That didn't begin with Hippocrates, it began with God. And number four, give yourself money, time, and talent, and energy, everything you have for eternal things. Know how to share the good news and do it. Help others with what they need. Do no harm and give yourself for eternal things. Now, go do that. As John Wesley said, remember the quote, do all the good you can in all the ways you can to all the souls you can in every place you can at all the times you can with all the zeal you can as long as ever you can. All God's people said... Amen. Now, one last piece of Titus's good deeds list there throughout the book deserves a deeper glance. Note the comment up in Titus 1.16. False teachers are worthless for good, okay? You see that? Now, add that to the profitable for everyone idea down in chapter 3, verse 8. What is God saying? He's saying that a lot of what goes for good deeds is actually unprofitable. Much of the billions spent on philanthropy is actually not profitable for everyone. It may make the giver feel better, but the deed is actually unprofitable for the recipient. We see this all the time in well-intentioned but poorly thought-through government programs. We see it in the charity events of the uber-wealthy. These supposedly good deeds make no discernible good and and quite frankly often cause long-term harm. But you know what they do? They They make the doer feel more noble. There's a term for this. It's pathological altruism. Pathological altruism. William Vigeli nailed the problem in the best speech I've ever heard on this subject. He gave this back in 2014. He said this, the intended beneficial consequences of social policies are routinely overwhelmed by the unintended harmful consequences they trigger. Yet, that matters not to pathological altruism. The pathology of pathological altruism is the indifference, uh, blithe, heedless, smug, or solipsistic um, Solipsistic kids is a word that kind of means self-centered. It, it, it's more than that, but it is self-centered. Uh, the, the pathology is the indifference to that fact and to the consequences of those failures. Just as long as the empathizer is accruing compassion points that he and others admire. As philosophy professor David Schmitz has said, if you're trying to prove your heart's in the right place, it isn't. Most notorious, of course, are schemes that actually harm one group to supposedly help another. 
a folly that director Christopher Nolan exposed brilliantly in his Batman trilogy of movies. Nolan stumbled on to what the Apostle Paul was saying 2,000 years ago. We must reform how we think about good deeds, then we can truly do good deeds. Otherwise, our shallow, banal, self-centered, solipsistic thinking will lead to malpractice. We must change our thinking, and then we can be more reformed in our activity. With that in mind, I wrote some very wise friends of mine. I was working through this text, and I wrote them, and I said, hey, tell me, what do you think needs reformed if Christians are to be truly engaged in good works that are, look at verse 8, profitable for all? That very high bar that very rarely is cleared in human society. So I wrote these wise people. I said, what do you think needs to change in our thinking if we're to do truly good works profitable for all? Their answers were remarkable. I want to share three of them with you. One friend wrote and said this, Wayne, good works are not salvific, uh, meaning they're not about your justification before God is what he meant by that. Nor will they make God love one anymore. However, they do have eternal consequences. God is building his eternal kingdom, and he gives us the awesome privilege of participating in his work. He does not need us, but he chooses to bless us with the opportunity to share in his work through our good works and consequently share in his glory, close quote. That is the opposite of pathological altruism. God doesn't need me. But he deigns to use me. By the way, this is why I never beg anyone to serve in ministry here. Never. In fact, I, I frankly think people should beg to be a part. Here's another statement from another wise friend of mine. Uh, she wrote and said, Wayne, uh, WB, profitability for everyone is the calling which requires serious examination before action. But that doesn't mean we just give up because we don't see immediate returns. There are times... God allows us to see the fruit of our good works, and other times we may not see any fruit until the bima, the, the judgment seat of Christ where Christians receive rewards. We should not grow discouraged, but trust the Lord is at work in a truly good deed, close quote. What we try to do is eliminate the pathology and work for the long term. That's, that's brilliant. I am so blessed with wise pals. Uh, one more comment about doing good works profitable for everyone. Somebody wrote me and said this, Wayne. Talking about profitable, the Lord has convicted me recently very strongly that I must not be about the praise from men for how thoughtful or generous I am. And this was written by a friend of mine who is very thoughtful and very generous. He goes on, instead, success is found in following his commands to love one another and give the glory to him. Thus, when I contribute to missionaries or the church or other groups that work in the name of Jesus, I remember Matthew 25 where Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of my brothers, you do to me. Amen. Think about this. What would you write to me? What do, you, what do you think, oh wise friends of mine, what do you think needs reformed in our thinking if Christians are to engage in truly good deeds that are profitable for all? By the way, feel free to write me. I would love to see what you have to say. With that in mind, let's read Paul's counterpoint, the antithesis. That's the thesis. Here's the antithesis. Verse 9. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that such person is perverted and sins being self-condemned. As we say on the right side of your notes, we must avoid the antithesis of good works, which are useless quarrels and divisive people. Foolish debates in verse 9, that describes some theological discussions and I think almost all social media arguments. For example, the satiric publication, The Babylon Bee, had an excellent uh, story recently. It said this, this is satire, I think. It says, Atlanta, Georgia. 
After getting into yet another argument on Facebook Monday morning, local believer Hank Reichert found himself blocked by several of his friends and family members. But the 32-year-old Christian was still unable to figure out if this new wave of persecution was because of his firm faith in Jesus or because of the fact that he's a, quote, total jerkwad, close quote, sources confirmed. This isn't the first time the totally obnoxious follower of Jesus has found himself in this situation. According to Reichert, he's constantly suffering persecution and exclusion in the workplace, among his family members, even at church. And he's never entirely certain if it's his reprehensible personality or his love for Jesus that is the cause. I'm always getting asked to leave restaurants and grocery stores for loudly arguing with people. I guess it's just my cross to bear in a culture that's diametrically opposed to the teaching of Jesus, he said. (laughs) Oh... Useless pursuits and divisive people. Now, seriously, let's walk through what happens. In Titus 3.9, Paul's very likely referring to, to the legalistic Jewish misunderstanding uh, of his day, and actually continues in our day, that justification before God, being made right before God, comes by human activity. Specifically, they taught that it comes by doing the works of Moses' law. That's how someone is justified, made right before God. Paul responds that God has called us to good works. Yes, he has, but it's part of our sanctification only, our being made holy. It has nothing to do with our justification. That comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And I'll tell you, not much has changed in 2,000 years. In my own experience, useless arguments on Christians especially seem to center around the law. Now, why would such a fight over the Mosaic law be worthless? Because although the Mosaic law is still God's word and it is very useful, it is fulfilled Jesus summarized very nicely. Look, just in the Gospel of Matthew, real briefly, look at what Jesus said about the law and the prophets. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what, everybody? Fulfill. And then in Matthew 22, he goes on and says, Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Listen to Jesus. And then take your typical church fight and ask this. Does my argument love God and my neighbor's? If not, forget it. If your fight over paint color or communion or the jeans worn by the youth staff or the coming tribulation or music or or the age of the earth, if your discussion about anything doesn't increase love for God and for others, you have fallen into the antithesis of good works. This is why we need continual reformation of how we talk and with whom we engage in serious thought. Please, don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean we cut off debate among Christians. It it, it doesn't mean we avoid apologetic discussions with non-believers. Conducted properly, those discussions can be very fruitful. When an argument is fought well, showing love for God and love for others, it can actually lead to a very rich understanding. Live any length of time. And, and you will experience the person who comes back later to you and says, I, I put my thinking cap on, or my thinking cat on, and, and I've been thinking about what you said. And in fact, you will find, I bet you, you will find, as I have, that you're often the one coming back and saying that. What you don't want to do is engage with or yourself become hieretikos. That's the word we translate divisive person, hieretikos. 
Sounds like heretic, doesn't it? It's where we get our word heretic from. Do you know heresy originally had a whole lot more to do with divisive attitude than it did with actual orthodoxy? In Greek thinking, that's what it was. It's a division-making person, a factious man. How does one become an hereticon? Gossip, slander, lies, spreading rumors, speaking ill of someone, basically anything CNN would do. Um, <laughs> being smug, supercilious is also divisive. Race-baiting, uh, closed-mindedness, corruption, losing sight of the great commands to love God and love others, that's how you become hereticon. Now, God, God knows what you're very likely thinking at this point. Um, at, this, at this point, in your mind, you're, you're using your favorite James Earl Jones imitation, this is CNN. And you're asking this, how does this work practically? How can I have good discussions while not becoming divisive or casting my pearls before swine? Good question. Thank you, James, for asking. God's answer is to give it three tries. Or as the greatness that is baseball would put it, three strikes and then they're out. Okay? The first time someone is divisive, warn them. Same thing for a second events. Third time, avoid them altogether. They're, they're out. They're out. I have noticed that it very rarely takes more than one. Maybe you've seen the same thing. When you tell someone that he or she is being divisive in unprofitable arguments, their style is hereticon. One of, one of two things almost always happens. It, it, it always happens almost immediately. Fools will run away after a single confrontation. Doesn't matter how respectfully and lovingly it was done, and a wise person is going to stay engaged with you, and they will change. Let me give you an example. It was over a decade ago. I had a very strange week. Thankfully, these are very rare. But I had a week with two serious confrontations in it. Uh, they were both confrontations that we call elder care here. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 18. People had been so divisive and so problematic, it had come up through the whole chain of the staff and eventually come to us as elders. In each situation, the person that we were confronting as elders had been gossiping. It's fascinating. They were the same problem, uh, not related to each other, stirring up pretty serious strife. The first person that we sat down and talked to got so mad that he got up from his chair, slammed his chair into the table, slammed the door, and stormed out. He went immediately to another church. Within two years, he had become an elder at that church. They never called and asked for any information. I prayed for them, very concerned. Sure enough, he caused major problems in that leadership, and he was run off that board. I think they're now on their fifth church since they left here. The second person we confronted was, frankly, equally angry. He was very upset, but he was quiet. He listened. He listened, he listened as we talked about Titus, actually, and he said, I'm going to think it over. We said, cool, that's all we ask. A couple of weeks later, I get the most beautiful apology letter, and we watched this guy grow as he was slowly restored to servant leadership with the support and, quite frankly, the applause of our elders. Do you know this guy is still engaged in ministry and is a major blessing in this church to this day? So God's thesis is be engaged in good deeds. By the way, that's something we'll discuss further in a study we've got coming up next fall. Secondly, Paul tells us avoid the antithesis, useless quarrels and divisive people. And that takes us to the synthesis statement. The synthesis, put these together, is that you need to plan for long-term and emergency help. Long-term and emergency help. Look at verses 12 through 14. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. <clears throat> diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so they will lack nothing. And our people must also learn to devote themselves to good works for cases of urgent need so that they will not be unfruitful. 
to understand the instruction here, we have to grasp how most teaching worked in the classical world. Uh, literacy and basic education were remarkably widespread in the Roman Empire. It, it would not, we wouldn't reach levels like that again until the, 19th century, until the 20th century. Uh, but experts, experts who were able to teach, those were really rare. So, so <clears throat> what happened was the experts would travel around. In our time, we do the exact opposite. See, a lot of you went to college. You go to a certain place or you go to seminars to learn. You go to a certain place to learn from the experts there. They did the exact opposite. The experts actually traveled using the wonderful Roman road system or the main sea routes, and they traveled on a kind of circuit going from church to church to church to encourage them and to, and to teach the scriptures in a more profitable way. So Paul says for these Cretan churches to, to prepare for the support of Artemis or Eretychicus, they're coming, along with Zenos and Apollos. These teachers are on their circuit. They're going to be passing through. They're going to need money. They're going to need lodging. They're going to need food, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Listen carefully. This kind of planned giving is not natural for humans. By the way, this next section is so convicting. If, you, if, if you're at all feeling like you need to go to the bathroom, this would be a very good time. This, this really, this is going to hurt, okay? I just, I warned you. This requires, to fulfill this scripture, requires reformation of how we budget or whether we budget, all right? This instruction in Titus is why my family budget has a missionary needs category. Along with our regular giving to the church, which is the first check every single month, and the building fund, which is the second, we budget dollars every single month not much, but we budget money every month for the special needs of missionaries that we know. And I highly recommend each of you do the same thing. It is exactly what this verse is talking about. Let me tell you what it'll do for you. When you get all those letters every spring from all the kids at church and other places who, who want support because they're going on a mission trip or the adults are going on a mission trip, it's a whole lot easier to be able to cover some of those when you've already planned for it, Right? It's, it's a lot easier to handle the, the needs. We, we support some missionaries outside of our church, and sometimes they have, they have serious needs. It's a lot easier for us to help with those when we've already planned in the budget. I highly recommend this to you. And on a corporate level, the same planning applies. What, what Paul describes here is very similar to what, what you and I do as we plan for all those missionaries that are on our wall out there, the, the long-term missionaries that we support. For example, for years we have supported this family, the Woodards, who serve in Papua New Guinea. And recently, they sent uh, our pastor, Andy Sipes, a video that describes how they're... This is so fascinating. Everything that's old is new again. You know what they're doing now in Papua? They've done such great work that now they're traveling around on a circuit, just like Apollos or Tychicus. Here, here let me show you. This is the Mediterranean world in the 21st century. Take a look. We're very, very excited to say hi to you from Papua New Guinea. We're um, here in the jungle, and um, we wanted to say hi and give you an update on how things have been going. We are church planners um, in Papua New Guinea, and you might wonder why we're in the middle of the jungle. Well, that's where we used to work, uh, planning a church, and we started in 2001, and we taught the Bible, translated the Bible, um, discipled, and moved out of Mariama. Uh, in Anganamai with elders and deacons there, two local churches there. And so now we're in what we call the itinerant ministry where we go visit them every three or four months to see how they're doing, check up on them, encourage them, and continue to teach them in that way. Was it hard? Did it involve sacrifice? Does it still involve sacrifice? Yes. Absolutely yes. 
but it's absolutely worth it to see people who for all of their lives were bound by Satan, had no hope, no truth to see them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and then start living them out, living that out and see that take place in their families. Amazing. I think the funnest thing to see was the huge changes in their families where the dad uh, loves the mom and the mom um, comes um, under the authority of the dad and um, loving the kids and disciplining the kids well and uh, discipling the kids, teaching them God's word, uh, having them sit around the fire at night in each hut, um, each house that they live in. Those are changes that uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't make happen as humans, but the Holy Spirit did that. Yeah, and again, going into it, even now, as we've, we've moved into an itinerant role where we go and come and visit our tribal churches and still encourage them and disciple them, um, we still feel, like I still feel inadequate and weak and like, who, who am I and who are we to tell them something that would change their lives? But that's just the thing. It's not us. It's the power of the Word of God. And it's so amazing to witness that firsthand and be a tiny little part of um, seeing God's news go out and be a little part of his global plan. We are um, helping other uh, younger church planners as they start their works, being consultants, um, church plan consultants. Telling them all the mistakes we made so they don't make them. <laughs> exactly. And um, also we're involved in um, doing uh, interface programs where college kids come over for the summer. Uh, six to seven weeks during the summer and we're right in the middle of that right now so that's why we're here on this this really is an island that we're on right now uh -huh. uh, just off the coast of Medang and uh, the kids are swimming out in the ocean right there but we want to say hi to you guys and um, and is it worth it to recruit new missionaries well is he still <laughs> worth giving glory yes and uh, so as these kids come over here and uh, want to know more about tribal church planning and more about what God is doing in Papua New Guinea we are excited to uh, tell them um, what he has done, what he is doing, and um, and challenge them into coming this way um, if that's what God has for them. Yes, and thank you for your part in sending us, in letting us be your hands and feet here. We love it. We love our job. Uh, we left a daughter in the state. She's in college, so we miss her like crazy. Um, but we're still absolutely convinced that this is where God has us right now at this time. But we couldn't be here without you guys praying for us and giving and sending us and being behind us mm -hmm. so thank you mm -hmm. lord willing we'll see you in november uh, your mission conference of 2018. thanks guys we really really appreciate you and we appreciate you very much that my friends is why we support missionaries it's why we strategically plan our long-term support also look at verse 14 we're fruitful when we take care of urgent needs verse 14 and our people must also learn to devote themselves to good works for cases of urgent need. Uh, if you want to read more about this, the Timothy letters say a great deal about this also. We're supposed to practice an emergency preparedness so we can help other Christians in need. This, this is why you and I have a benevolence fund here. M many of us give to it every month. And the elders use those funds only for members of the church who are in a legitimate emergency. Verse 14 also explains why you and I re regularly give our, our, our corporate funds to social outreach ministries that help people who are in urgent need all around our area. This is a learned behavior. It's something that takes continual reformation. This kind of support requires more than a momentary spasm. In fact, 
Spasms of reactionary good works are quite often unfruitful because here's what happens. False teachers prey upon Christian compassion and then they use those monies that are given in a spasm unwisely. Possibly the most graphic example so far in the 21st century is Haiti. 2010, terrible earthquake in Haiti. In response, the American Red Cross raised $500 million to build homes. $500 million. They said they would build thousands of houses. Years later, six homes have been built. Six, according to an NPR report. The neighborhoods that they said they would transform still look like this. Paul's synthesis statement is that we do good works by preparing for long-term and emergency help. I was discussing this with our pulpit team, and Cindy Sharp uh, sent me a great illustration. In fact, I liked it so much, I put this quote in your notes. I just thought this was brilliant. Cindy says, uh, planning for long-term and emergency help reminds me of the quilt ladies I work with. Uh, it is not uncommon for them to come to me with an odd project to finish. They, they don't really know why they picked that fabric or that pattern. They have no real idea who the project, uh, what the, who the project is for or what event it's meant to commemorate. However... They feel called to finish it. When we talk further, it's revealed that they fully believe this quilt is meant for someone in particular. God just hasn't shown them who yet. They plan to be ready to give that quilt when the gift is needed. Interestingly, most of these projects end up in the hands of the perfect recipient. The colors and patterns speak to the receiver when the maker had no notion of what they were doing. And she finishes by saying, these are my favorite quilts. That, my friends, is how we live a life of good works. We have our quilts ready. We get our quilts ready. Now, let's conclude the letter. Look at verse 15. Let's read the conclusion. All those who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. Now, greeting and offering a blessing, those are normal closing words and a whole lot of correspondence we have from the first century. But Paul uses a specific word that has a very significant meaning. Uh, what my Bible translates grace is the Greek charis, um, or as we say in Texas, charis. Um, Paul... Paul is pronouncing charis on the Christians. Now, why is that a big deal? Because Paul uses charis fairly often. And in every other context, every other time Paul uses charis, he is emphasizing joy. He's emphasizing the joyfulness of grace. There is a joy that comes when one appreciates and understands God's grace. And Paul is highlighting that joy. Uh, German scholar Hans Konzelmann wrote this 50 years ago. He said, joy, charis, is the actualization of freedom which takes concrete form in fellowship. Joy is an essential factor in the relation between apostle and community. See, asks very good. Okay, so when Paul prays grace upon the churches, he's calling for joyful fellowship. He's describing in a word, this amazing word, charis, he's describing the redeemed community that is the local church. And that's the conclusion of the section, for, for Christians to grow in gracious, joyful fellowship. And by the way, the context must not be lost here. Good works deepen the joy of fellowship. At our recent beach party, the church's annual beach party, I watched, I walked around with open eyes, and I saw amazing fellowship. I saw little kids waiting for each other in line. Kids being kind and waiting. I saw youth making sure that everybody was included I saw people sharing sunscreen and food and laughter, although I think I had to beg for your grapes, but it was, it was very nice. What do you think was the result in my heart? Just, just put yourself in my shoes. What do you think was the result in my heart as I walked around and saw all these people showing grace and joyful fellowship with one another? What do, you, what do you think happened? Somebody first hour yelled out, it grew three sizes that day. <laughs> um, that's about right. 
Thank you, Grinch. What happened is I felt joy. I felt hurries. I, I, I experienced gracious fellowship. You know what happened? I, I grew closer to my brethren because of their good deeds. Speaking of conclusions, we've reached the end of Titus. Let's wrap the series by reviewing. Can we review real quickly the, the objective for the letter? This is months and months ago what I prayed through and, and the pulpit team prayed through that God would change in each of us as a result of our time in this letter, that we partner with God in continually reforming our lives, our church, and eventually world according to truth and godliness. Paul relates this objective at the very beginning of the book, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so you might put what remained into order. And, and, the, and the Greek there, into order, is a really fascinating word about, about formation. You could form things. Many days ago, we discussed how researchers at the University of Maryland and at Harvard uh, recently created something that the press is calling time crystals. I have since read that the scientists who worked on this hate that title, but they're stuck with it. Um, what these are is these are structures. Get this. These are structures that seem to be quantumly different than all of the rest of the matter around them. Here, here's how they did it. The scientists took ions out of their natural state and they, and they bombarded those ions with either microwaves or, or with lasers to, to prod them. In response, something very unexpected happened. Here's what happened. When they got prodded, these ions formed together. They were supposed to go running off as radicals, but what they did was they actually formed together and they formed a community together that is quantumly different than all of the other matter around them. And even more, get this. Do you know what, the, what this is why they're calling them time crystals? They seem to be in a state of perpetual motion. They cannot find any time that they stop forming and reforming. They're always reforming in these crystalline structures they've made. Now, I read that, and I, I'm kind of a science nut. I, I like reading such stuff, and I was astounded, not because of that research. In fact, that may eventually prove fruitless. It may not prove not to be what they think it is. I was struck by the parallels to the book of Titus. Titus tells us that God prods us with his word, he prods us with his spirit to produce a type of community that is different, quantumly different than the world around us. It is a place and a time of continuous reformation. And far from fruitless, that reformation changes everything. All God's people said? Let's pray together. Let's pray for ourselves in the continual reformation of our church. Lord, to fulfill our ministry, we have got to reform our activity. Help me, please help me, help my brethren that we will live according to your adamant thesis, that we will be engaged in good works, especially that we'll be planning for long-term and emergency needs. Reform our budgets. Help us, Lord, that we can avoid, oh, please help us avoid the antithesis of good works, useless quarrels, divisive people. And may we live according to your conclusion. Oh, I pray we live growing in gracious, joyful fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.